Have you ever had deja vu? Had that? Where you're experiencing something, but you know you've been there before. And I don't know if you're like me, but when you have deja vu, you think that you can actually predict everything that's about to happen next. And then you get, you know, you feel a little bit high on your horse, and you think you've got it all figured out, and then it kind of fades as fast as it it came. But deja vu actually means already seen. Like, that's literally what that means. And I mentioned deja vu because the passage for this morning was, for me, a deja vu moment. I mean, we are literally not going back and doing a repeat sermon of a passage we've already done. I mean, we are moving forward in the Gospel of Mark today. We're in our 32nd sermon in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10. But when I read this passage, this story, I had deja vu. I thought, I've been here before. And so what I want to do for the next little bit is I want to take you on my journey of deja vu. Because if you've been paying attention, you may have deja vu too. Let me explain, let me explain right after we read our story. So come with me, let's read the story, and then take a journey through my deja vu. The story begins, verse 17, it's where we see Jesus on the move again. So now we're in a different scene here in this chapter. Chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go into the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I would say that we, we have... We've been here before. I got this great sense after reading that story of deja vu. So let me explain kind of why that, why that is. Let's take a look. I'm going to put up a slide here, kind of visualize this. One of the things we've said in our time together in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark lays out certain themes, and he runs those themes from the beginning of his record of Jesus, and he will run them all the way to the end of his record of the life of Jesus, the Christ. And so I see here, 
Although the story is new, we've heard themes before. And I see in this story three themes. Three themes that we saw developed. They emerged near the beginning of his record, the, this account written by Mark. And we're, we will see them develop. And so we're going to take a look at those three themes. Because there are three themes in this story of the rich young ruler And we've actually seen those themes from early on in the gospel. So much so that I hope that you experience what I experience, that this story, although new, has a deja vu element to it. Like you knew the story before you ever read it. Because those themes in the story of the rich young ruler are so prominent. So we're just going to take now a review. We're going to walk down memory lane through the Gospel of Mark, and watch those themes develop along the way. I think you'll see how prominent they are right here in this story. So remember, remember, we're going to go all the way back now to chapter 4. Let's take the first theme. One of the things that we have noted early on in the Gospel of Mark, we noted, was that Jesus was breaking people's preconceived ideas of who the Messiah was going to be. That is, that they had a box that they thought Jesus should fit in, and they tried to put him in the box. And over and over again, Jesus was breaking the box. He would not be controlled by human traditions or human ideas about what the Messiah would be. He came as something really different. And we see that theme emerging all the way back in chapter 4, the Gospel of Mark. If you remember the story, Jesus is on a boat, and he went to sleep. And then while sleeping, a storm arose. And the disciples, after fighting that storm for many hours, finally think it's all over. And then Jesus wakes up. You remember what he does? He calms the storm. Now, in that moment, it's important for us to understand what's happening to the disciples' box that they had tried to put Jesus in. So here's a way that we visualize it. I want us to remember this. They understood that Jesus had authority over evil spirits, diseases, and that he soon would have authority over Rome. And and that was the box they had Jesus in. But there were certain things that Jesus didn't have authority over. For example, take a look at the God box. In their world, God the Father, he had authority over the winds and the waves. That was not something Jesus had authority over. The disciples had seen Jesus healing a lot of people. And they believed he was going to something really great. But they, they, they knew, in their thinking, that there was, a, there was a limitation to how far Jesus' authority went. That's God's realm. That's God's box, not Jesus' box. And yet, when he calmed the storm, you know what happened? All of a sudden, Jesus' box got, got a lot bigger. And so, not only did he have authority over evil spirits and over the diseases, and and soon over Rome, but all of a sudden now, what they thought was the realm of God was now in Jesus' box. And so we said it this way, I just want to make sure we get this. Jesus broke the box the disciples had put him in when he calmed the storm. They realized he was bigger than anything they imagined. And And so early on in the record of the life of Jesus, as Mark is writing it, he's wanting the reader, you and me, to see that this Jesus, he will not be contained by these nice, neat boxes we put him in. Then if you remember, in chapter 8, we'll put up this next slide, if we just keep moving down in the gospel, moving forward in the gospel, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus predicts his death. 
And in chapter 8, Peter took him aside and said, whoa, (laughs) I don't think you understand who you are. Let me help you understand. And then Jesus says those famous words, get behind me, Satan. You have the thoughts of man, not the thoughts of God. And then in chapter 9, Jesus again declares that he will go, he'll be beaten, die, he'll be buried, but he's going to come back to life. And then he tries to have a conversation with his disciples, and the disciples don't really want to talk to him because they don't have a clue what he just said, and they're scared. And so in both these cases, Jesus breaks the box they put him in. We visualized it this way. I think this is helpful maybe for us to see. You see, the disciples believe God would send a king to deliver his people from their enemies and rule the nations forever. And it would be an upward march to political power. One day Jesus would own all the guns. He'd have all the tanks and he would beat Rome, remove them from ancient Palestine, and he would rule as God had always promised. And he would be a strong military force. But see, Jesus would not be put in that box. He told them he would go die. And this was the story that Jesus was telling them. He knew that the path to his coronation and victory over evil, it had to go through a Roman cross. They had no concept of how this would work. What king gets to their throne by way of death? No one does that. What president, what president goes to their inauguration being beat and going through the electric chair? No one does that. You go to your inauguration with power and strength, pomp and circumstance. And so here in this moment when Jesus tells the disciples who he really is, they really don't have a way of understanding it because they've put Jesus in this political box, this powerful military box. This box they thought was the Messiah, and Jesus breaks it. So important for us to see. And isn't it interesting then, that when we get into the story of the rich young ruler, do you know what the disciples are carrying with them? They're carrying a particular idea about the kingdom of God. You see, they've created for themselves a view of the kingdom of God that many other people carry. A particular view that's a nice, neat box that people that are well-to-do, people that are rich... They're the ones that get in first. Isn't that the way it usually works in our world? When you've got money and resources, you usually get to be first. And yet Jesus breaks that box. Remember what he says. Let's go back, chapter 10, verses 23 and 25. This is part of the story, but it's the same story we've been reading all, all, all along. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And did you see what comes next? The disciples, the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed, by the way? Because he just broke their box. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone for, who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus breaks their box. I'd say he surprises them. And so we need to see that part of the story. There is fundamentally here nothing wrong with being wealthy or being rich. The key here is Jesus is challenging and breaking an assumption they've already carried with them all along the way. So let's take the next theme. So that's one reason I had deja vu as I was reading The Rich Young Ruler. This next theme is where we have an upside-down kingdom. 
where everything seems to be flipped. And if we remember the way this begins in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 2, Jesus starts to call to himself students. They're going to walk with him. Interestingly, Jesus picks a tax collector, a Roman tax collector. That's like having an ISIS member among you and picking the ISIS member to be a political figure to represent your town. That doesn't make any sense. Who picks the enemy to be on your team? That doesn't make sense. That's upside down. He picks Levi. And then from there, he goes with Levi and he has a party with people of ill repute, sinners, dirty people, people you don't associate with. You just don't do that. Not if you're good people. You don't go hang out with people like that. And yet Jesus does the very opposite of what we'd expect. You see, in the kingdom of God, everything seems to be turned upside down. And so we said there at that point, as we were watching this theme develop, we noted the contrast. Let's put that slide up. We noted that the world invites the best and the brightest, the righteous and the well-off, and the world invites rules and rituals. That's a nice, neat world. And yet, Jesus invites the corrupt and the ignored, the dirty and the unworthy, and he invites relationship. Huh. That's an upside-down kingdom. Then, from there, we walked several chapters, and then we moved into chapter 6. Chapter 6, and we heard the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this rogue figure in the wilderness of Judea, who happens to be a big fan of who many people think will be the Messiah. And as the Messiah's power grows and his influence expands throughout ancient Palestine, so John the Baptist's profile and influence continues to go up. But at some point, he gets, he gets crossways with a political figure, and he is imprisoned. He's put in prison. And ultimately, he has his head cut off. Now, that just strikes me. Because in this world, the more power you get, the more influence you gain, the more people are underneath you, the more people at your command, and the more you look powerful and successful. But here in the kingdom of God, someone who is influential in the kingdom, connected closely with Jesus, we don't see him moving to power. We see his head cut off. I hope we understand how backwards that is to us. That just doesn't happen. And then when someone's head does get cut off, you usually think, well, something must have been wrong with them. And yet, we noted at that point how, how upside down the kingdom is. We would expect, we would expect that power, power and success are going to get us to a castle. But what we found and what we noted was that this is going to push us to a Roman cross. Let's say it this way. I want to say it this way. We noted it when we did this passage. The way to true life is through not through a castle, but a cross. That's upside down. That's just not how you and I think. And then we noted the difference between Herod, this political figure, and the values of the world, and then the values of the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, they're backwards. So, Herod and the kingdom of this world, they value being served. But in the kingdom of God, you value serving other people. In the world, you value being first. In the kingdom of God, it's being last. In the kingdom of the world, it's luxury. In the kingdom of God, it's sacrifice. 
In the world, it's being better than others. And in the kingdom of God, it's humility. And in the world, it's power. But in the kingdom of God, it's truth. That's something. That's backwards. And so if we go from there and we watch this theme just continue to play out, in chapter 8, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus told about his coming death, and he, maybe I, should, maybe I should come off of this. Let me go with the mic. I'm so sorry. Fix my mic. <laughs> this would be wonderful. So when we get to chapter 8 in Mark, when Jesus declares that he will die, be buried, come back to life in three days, he just doesn't leave it there. And it's not just that the disciples don't understand or that they're trying to rebuke him for bad thinking. There in chapter 8, Jesus then goes on to say, the way, the way I go, you go. Look at what he says. just want to make sure we understand how upside down this is. Mark chapter 8, 34 through 35, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Who says the way to gain life is to lose it? That doesn't make sense. That's upside down. That's backwards thinking. It's the reverse of everything else we're taught in this world. And yet for Jesus, that's the way the kingdom of God works because this is an upside down kingdom. Then in chapter 9, he does something very similar. And he uses a child and he even repeats words we will see in the story that we read today, which is literally deja vu. Take a look, chapter 9. Take a look at this passage. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. If you want to be first, then you need to be last. That doesn't work in any other part of this world. But in the kingdom of God, it's upside down. And so when we get to the story of the rich young ruler, guess what? That same theme, and even some of the same words, they come right back to this story. They're, they play out in this story. It's why I think there's some deja vu. Take a look at the rich young ruler, that story. The passage ends here, chapter 10, verse 29, 31. Jesus says, I truly tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is an upside-down kingdom. Third thing, third thing I see running through the gospel, and it comes right into and through the story of the rich young ruler. And that is that there's an inside focus, an inside focus. 
That is that Jesus is concerned first and foremost with who we are, the kind of person we are, like your character, like who you are in the heart. If you remember, Jesus told a parable. If we go back to chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus told a parable about a guy, a farmer, who would cast seed on the ground, and then those seeds did different things. And it was the fourth seed, remember, that produced all this fruit. And the disciples said, well, I don't really understand all that, Jesus. And then he said, okay, let me explain it to you. And then he gave an explanation. And in that explanation, when he got to the third seed, you know why the third seed didn't grow? Take a look. This is why the third seed didn't grow. Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19 Still others, like seed sown among thorns, they hear the word, this is the word of God, this is the gospel, they hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. All of those things, these desires, the deceitfulness, the worries of life, you know where you find all those things? In the heart, in the heart. These are not things that are coming from the outside necessarily. These are things that emerge first and foremost from the heart. And early on, Jesus is teaching his students that it is the heart that must be right if it is to be fruitful. And then if we move forward to chapter 7, you remember that the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, ah, your disciples, they're picking grain with unclean hands. they got to go wash their hands first. Now, on a day with the coronavirus, that's a good thing, right? Let's wash our hands. Okay, I'm not predicting yes or no if we're all going to die. I'm just saying we take washing our hands seriously. But in the context of this episode, the Pharisees say that they are actually, they are actually dirty, like morally dirty. They're, they're ritually unclean. And then Jesus goes on to teach his students, it's actually not what goes on goes through the mouth and down into the belly that makes you unclean. It's actually what's on the inside that comes out that makes you unclean. This is what he says, chapter 7, verse 15. We'll look at 20 through 23. Here's what Jesus says. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart. Well, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And then, after chapter 7, we move into the two, two passages right before this week's passage of the rich young ruler. If you remember in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus talked about cutting off your hand or your feet or gouging out your eye. He talked about you being salt or, or really unsalty. He talked about being a stumbling block. And it was all these random teachings. And we noted there that at the core, Jesus was teaching us something about the kingdom of God as it relates to the heart, to the inside. And this is the summary we had for that message Jesus warned his disciples that they could not live in the kingdom unless they removed those things inside their hearts that caused them to stumble. It's an inside thing. I mean, you can cut off every part of your body that causes you to sin and still have an ugly heart. You can just be a nub. Like, like really, no arms, no legs. Take off your ears. Well, take out your eyes. You can just be a blob and still have evil thoughts. And so the issue is on the inside. And then last week, 
As we began our journey into chapter 10, Jesus had teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And yet he coupled that with a teaching about children and what you have to become to enter the kingdom. And even that sensitive topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we came to a summary that said this in that passage. We said that Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage has less to do with legalism and more to do with the renovation of the heart. Because you can keep a particular rule about divorce and yet still be a very ugly person. And so we get to this theme that Jesus is always focused on the inside. And isn't it interesting when we come into the story of the rich young ruler that we see that same thing apply. Take a look. We'll just last time we reread a section of this story. Chapter 10, 19 through 20. This is what Jesus says. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, I don't think, I don't think that Jesus is here giving a teaching on if you can have wealth or, or not. I think this is a teaching in favor of capitalism or against it. I don't think this is, this is not what Jesus is doing here. Because we also know in other parts of the Gospels that Jesus was being, was being supported by some wealthy women. Wealth is a good thing. Wealth comes from God. But it also has a way of entangling the heart. And for this young man... It had. And so for him, Jesus wasn't concerned that he was a a nice, neat rule follower. He wanted his heart. And for this man, in this context, the next right thing for him to do was to untangle the wealth from his heart. And the way for him to do that was to sell what he had and give to the poor. And some of us may need to do something like that. But we don't, want to miss, we don't want to miss the deeper teaching by just having something to say about wealth. Because if it would have been someone different, it could have been another next step. For this man, it was wealth. But do you see that Jesus wasn't concerned here with all the rules he kept? Because the guy says, I've kept them since he was a boy. Now, I think he was lying. I don't think boys, young children keep that many rules. I just don't think it's possible. So I think in the end, he was lying right there. But let's just assume he kept all the rules. Even keeping all the rules did not get him to a place of entering the kingdom of God. That tells us that the kingdom of God is beyond rules because the inside is what matters. And when you get the inside right, guess what? All the rules have a way of taking care of themselves. So... Three themes. Now, what I want to do is I want to put all of that up on one slide and make it look really busy on this slide. That's what we just did, okay? So you can see, I hope, that each of those themes starts early in the gospel and run right up into our story today. And they will continue all the way to the cross and resurrection. Now, let's simplify. Let's bring the next slide in. And just so you see those three themes, that Jesus is always breaking our preconceived boxes that this is a kingdom that's upside down. And so you'll always be a little uncomfortable with walking with Jesus in this world. And he is always grabbing for your heart. 
who you are. Now, let's take all that and make some application, because that was a lot to review. That's a lot of deja vu. So let's make some application. Let's start here. Let's start here. I think this is a good application for us to bring away from this, like right where you are in your life. We are most in danger of misunderstanding and mistrusting God when we think we have him all figured out. Now, you know one way you can tell if you think you have them all figured out? You think you have all the right rules in place. If you judge people really quick because you know what's right and wrong and you've got all the rules figured out, then, then you may be in danger of misunderstanding and mistrusting God. And please don't miss the mistrust part. Because when we think we have God figured out and we've put him in the box and we've got all of our nice rules that not only we should follow but everyone else should follow and then life throws us a curveball, a diagnosis comes, a lost job a rebellious child you don't know how to deal with. I mean, think of the number of things that life will give you that you don't know how to explain. It's at that point when the box you put God in doesn't make sense of your lived experience that you and I will struggle with mistrust. And so what we need to realize is wherever you find yourself, whatever your actual life looks like, God is there. And he is still good. And that's where we start. So be very careful. We must be very careful that we don't walk around thinking we've got God figured out. Because the moment we do, something will happen. Or we'll find ourselves in a situation we cannot explain. And we will struggle with trust. Because God will not be put in a box. Let's go with another one. This is one of my favorites. This, I'm pulling this back from the vault from, from back in September. Does Jesus surprise you anymore? Is there anything about Jesus that shocks you? Just a few weeks ago, I was at the fire department, hanging out with some of the guys, and, and we got talking about something, and then I just shared about my reading in the Gospel of Luke that morning. And so I'd read a large section of the Gospel of Luke. I'm just going to be, let me just be honest. I was honest with them. No reason not to be honest with you. I'll be fake later, but right now, let me be honest, okay? Here's what I said. I said, I'm mad at Jesus right now. And I, and I was and still am as I reflect on some of the teachings Jesus was bringing in that section of the Gospel of Luke. Because you know what goes, went through my head and still goes through my head? Who does he think he is and who can actually live this way? I mean, I'm listening to Jesus say some pretty crazy things. Now, if I keep Jesus in his religious bubble where I only deal with him in church, like in this room, and this is like the holy place, well, then I'm good because when I go out of this place, then I just, it's my life. But if Jesus is really dealing with the life I live in my kitchen and in my bedroom and out in the community, then I got to deal with some of these things. And Jesus shocks me sometimes. And not just shocks me, like he makes me mad. I mean, I hope it's okay to say that. I mean, if it is or isn't, it doesn't matter. I, I get mad at Jesus sometimes because I can't believe how crazy he talks. I never want to lose that sense of being shocked by Jesus. Because when I lose it, then I've probably thought I figured him out. And we have to be very careful. So when's the last time you've been surprised by Jesus? Now, some of you aren't surprised by Jesus because you don't even read about Jesus. Like, like, that's not even on your radar. Like, if you even get an hour in church, and please understand, I'm not laying a guilt trip here. I don't think church saves you. I don't think you getting this hour ends what gets the box checked and gets you into Disneyland and heaven. Like, I don't think that's the way this works. 
I think this is relationship. And so as you sit with Jesus through the Gospels, I just hope that he continues to surprise us and shock us. It's a good place for us to be. And then last, and then last, I think Jesus is still saying things and would say things to us, like he said to the rich young ruler. I'm just throwing out some ideas. The number of examples are infinite. And sometimes preachers, secret, if they need to get extra time in their sermon, they'll do this kind of thing I'm about to do, and they'll just keep giving examples. And it'll look like they prepared a long time. They're just coming up with stuff off their head as they're given the application. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do the slide. But just know, if you ever see me do it, someone's got to call me on it, because that's just lazy. Let's go. Jesus might be saying this. One thing you lack. Here's an example. Put down your phone and pay attention to your children. Ugh. That was, I came up with that because I watched someone do it. That obviously was not me. That was someone else I saw do it. Maybe he would say, one thing you lack, drive slower. Uh-huh, there it was. Listen, I'm not saying something about keeping the law. I'm saying something about being in a hurry. Because typically when you drive fast and you're on someone's bumper, guess who's the number one person in the world? You. That's not good training for your heart. So maybe drive slower. One thing you lack, Jesus might say, stop yelling at home. Stop yelling at home. You know what yelling is. Like you know when you've crossed the line. I'm not talking about stern. I'm talking about yelling because you're full of rage or anger. Or maybe Jesus might say, one thing you lack, turn off the political news and focus on my kingdom. That's not a statement on Republicans or Democrats. Independence, Green Party, that's not the point here. But guess where your mind will be if all you do is watch political news? You'll start to think that the salvation of the world is in the hands of the American people. It's not. We can elect a Democrat or Republican, and the kingdom of God will still be safe. And we'll be okay as his students and as his people. So again, I got no problem with political news, but Jesus just might tell some of you, turn it off, give me some of your attention. Now listen, you can come up with all the other examples. Let me go with the next step. Here's something that you and I can do today. Do the next right thing and trust God with the outcome. You know who the rich young ruler is going to have to trust if he sold everything, right? He's going to have to trust Jesus. And this doesn't have to be big. One example I use often, because it is so hard for me, is when I get into an argument, particularly with our growing children who have uh, 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 increasing use of the English language, like they, they, they grow in their command of the language, is you know what I want? I want the last word. I pay the bills, or Tess and I pay the bills. Be very careful. Tess and I pay the bills. It's our house. We provide the food and shelter. I'm getting the last word. That's my right. But do you know what often happens when I try to get the last word? you know what usually happens to that argument? It keeps descending down to a dark place. And you might find this with good friends. You might find this with spouses. You might find this with your grown children. I'm just saying, sometimes the next right thing is to shut my mouth. And then i got to trust God that he can take care of my teenager. Now, that can play out in all kinds of ways in your life. I don't know what that looks like for you, but you and I all 
know what it means to have a sense of the next right thing. And when that comes, you do it, and you trust God for the outcome. And that will do more for training your heart in the kingdom of God than anything else you do. So you move in that direction. And that will get us to a place where I think we can find application and use of this story in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll see boxes broken. We'll see what it looks like to live and feel what it looks like to uh, feels what it what it feels like to live in an upside down kingdom. And we'll see our inside change. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this just this this really smart telling of this story of the rich young ruler. Thanks for the where Mark has placed it in his record. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the Word, that it can do the work on the inside it needs to do. So help us become people who are following Jesus in this way. And I pray you help us when we need that help, particularly today when we know to do the next right thing. And we are training to trust you in ordinary things. We want to love you, and we want to follow you, and wherever we don't, would you help us as well? We pray that under the power of Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One. And together we say, Amen.